Welcome to Golden Gems with Dave Shaw and Bill Hansen. We review each week the career and personal life of one of the great unforgettable artists of the golden days of radio. So please join with us on a trip down memory lane as we take a look at today's artist. Then go to our website, www.goldengems.net, where we will also look at more of their career and play some of their most unforgettable great hits, which we are unable to share on the podcast. We invite you to join us there also. But for now, sit back and relax as we talk about the life of today's unforgettable artist of the golden days of radio. Well, this is Dave Sean, Bill Hansen once again on our podcast, Golden Gems. And uh, today we're talking about one of the great artists of all time. Of course, we say that about every program that we have. We're going to be talking about Bing Crosby. His name, Harry Lillis Bing Crosby, was born on May 3, 1903 in Tacoma, Washington, in a house his father built at 1112 North J Street. In 1906, his family moved to Spokane in eastern Washington State, where he was raised. In 1913, his father built a house at 508 East Sharp Avenue. The house sits now on the campus of his alma mater, Gonzaga University. It functions today as a museum, housing over 200 artifacts from his life and career, including his Oscars. He was the fourth of seven children, brothers Lawrence Earl Larry, 1895-1975, Everett Nathaniel, 1896-1966, Edward John, Ted, 1900-1973, and George Robert Bob, 1913-1993, and two sisters, Catherine Cordelia, 1904-1974, and Mary Rose, 1906-1990. His parents were Harry Lowe Crosby, 1870-1950, a bookkeeper, and Catherine Helen Kate. His mother was a second-generation Irish-American. His father was of English descent. On November 8, 1937, after Lux Radio Theater's adaptation of She Loves Me Not, Joan Blondell asked Crosby how he got his nickname. Crosby said, Well, I'll tell you, back in the knee breeches day, when I was a wee little tyke, a mere broth of a lad, as we say in Spokane, I used to totter around the streets with a gun on each hip. My favorite after-school pastime was a game known as Cops and Robbers. I didn't care which side I was on when a cop or robber came into view. I would haul out my trusty six-shooters, made of wood, and loudly exclaim, Bing! Bing! as my luckless victim fell clutching his side. I would shout, Bing! Bing! and I would let him have it again. And then as his friends came to his rescue, shooting as they came, I would shout, Bing! 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 Well, that's where he got his name, I guess. <laughs> Blondell, I'm surprised they didn't call you Killer Crosby. Now tell me another story, Grandpa. Crosby. No, so help me, it's the truth. Ask Mr. DeMille. DeMille. I'll vouch for it, Bing. Well, that made a really good story. But the truth was that it was pure whimsy for a dramatic effect 
And the truth is that a neighbor, Valentine Hobart, named him Bingo from Bingville after a comic feature in the local paper called the Bingfield Bugle, which the young Harry liked. In time, Bingo got shortened to Bing. In 1917, Crosby took a summer job as property boy in Spokane's auditorium, where he witnessed some of the finest acts of the day, including Al Jolson, who held him spellbound with ad-libbing and parodies of Hawaiian songs. He later described Jolson's delivery as electric. Crosby graduated from Gonzaga High School in 1920 and enrolled at Gonzaga University. He attended Gonzaga for three years but did not earn a degree. As a freshman, he played on the university baseball team. The university granted him an honorary doctorate in 1937. In addition to an amazing musical career, which we reviewed in our GoldenGems.net webcast, Bing Crosby had an equally remarkable film and television career, a solid decade of headlining mainly smash-hit musical comedy films in the 1930s, brought Crosby to be starring with Bob Hope and Dorothy L'Amour in six of the seven Road to musical comedies between 1940 and 1962. L'Amour was replaced with Joan Collins in The Road to Hong Kong, cementing Crosby and Hope as an on-and-off duo. Despite never officially declaring themselves as a team, in the sense that Laurel and Hardy or Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis were teams, the series consisted of Road to Singapore, 1940, Road to Zanzibar, 1941, Road to Morocco, 1942, Road to Utopia, 1946, Road to Rio, 1947, Road to Bali, 1952, and The Road to Hong Kong in 1962. When they appeared solo, Crosby and Hope frequently made note of each other in a comically insulting fashion. They performed together countless times on stage, film, radio, and television and made numerous brief and not-so-brief appearances together in movies aside from the road pictures. Variety Girl, 1947, being an example of lengthy scenes and songs together along with Billings. He won an Academy Award for Best Actor for Going My Way in 1944 and was nominated for the 1945 sequel, The Bells of St. Mary's. He received critical acclaim for his performance as an alcoholic entertainer in The Country Girl and received his third Academy Award nomination. The Fireside Theater, 1950, was his first television production. The series of 26-minute shows was filmed at Hal Roach Studios rather than performed live on the air. The telefilms were syndicated to individual television stations. He was a frequent guest on the musical variety shows of the 1950s and 1960s, appearing literally countless times on various variety shows as well as numerous late-night talk shows and his own highly rated specials. Bob Hope memorably devoted one of his monthly NBC specials to his long intermittent partnership with Crosby titled On the Road with Bing. Crosby was associated with ABC's The Hollywood Palace as the show's first and most frequent guest host and appeared annually on its Christmas edition with his wife Catherine and his younger children. 
and continued after the Hollywood Palace was eventually canceled. In the early 1970s, he made two late appearances on the Flip Wilson show, singing duets with a comedian. His last TV appearance was a Christmas special taped in London in September 1977 and aired weeks after his death. It was on this special that he recorded a duet of the Little Drummer Boy and Peace on Earth with rock star David Bowie. Bing Crosby Productions affiliated with Desilu Studios and later CBS Television Studios produced a number of television series. The company produced two ABC medical dramas, Ben Casey, 1961 through 1966, and Breaking Point, 1963 through 1964, the popular Hogan's Heroes, 1965 to 1971, military comedy on CBS, as well as the lesser-known show Slattery's People, 1964 to 1965. Crosby was among the most popular and successful musical acts of the 20th century. Billboard magazine charts were impressive. 396 chart singles, including roughly 25 number one hits. Crosby had separate charting singles every year between 1931 and 1954. The annual re-release of White Christmas extended that streak to 1957. He had 24 separate popular singles in 1939 alone. Statistician Joel Whitburn at Billboard determined that Crosby was America's most successful recording act of the 1930s and again in the 1940s. For 15 years, 1934, 37, 40, 1943 through 1954, Crosby was among the top 10 acts in box office sales. And for five of those years, 1944 through 48, he topped the world. He sang four Academy Award winning songs, Sweet Leilani, 1937, White Christmas, 1942, Singing on a Star, 1944, In the Cool, Cool, Cool of the Evening, 1951, and won the Academy Award for Best Actor for his role in Going My Way, 1944. In 1962, Crosby was given the Grammy Life Achievement Award. He's been inducted into all the halls of fame for both radio and popular music. In 2007, he was inducted into the Hip Parade Hall of Fame, and in 2008, the Western Music Hall of Fame. Crosby became one of the richest men in history of show business. He had investments in real estate, mines, oil wells, cattle ranches, racehorses, music publishing, baseball teams, and television. He made a fabulous fortune from his Minute Maid Orange Juice Corporation, in which he was a principal stockholder. During the golden age of radio, performers had to create their own shows live, sometimes even redoing the program a second time for the West Coast time zone. Crosby had to do two live shows on the same day, three hours apart, for the East and West Coasts. Crosby's radio career took a significant turn in 1945 when he clashed with NBC over his insistence that he be allowed to pre-record his radio shows. Crosby saw an, Crosby saw an enormous advantage in pre-recording his radio shows. 
The scheduling could now be done at the star's convenience. He could do four shows a week if he chose and then take a month off. But the networks and sponsors were adamantly opposed. The public wouldn't stand for canned radio, the networks argued. But there was something magic for listeners in the fact that they were hearing what was being performed and heard everywhere at that precise instant. Some of the best moments in comedy came when a line was blown and the star had to rely on wit to rescue a bad situation. Fred Allen, Jack Benny, Phil Harris, and also Crosby were masters at this, and the networks weren't about to give it up easily. Crosby's insistence eventually factored into the further development of magnetic tape sound recording and the radio industry's widespread adoption of it. He used his clout, both professional and financial, for innovations in audio, but NBC and CBS refused to broadcast pre-recorded radio programs. Crosby left the network and remained off the air for seven months, creating a legal battle with his sponsor, Kraft, that was settled out of court. He returned to broadcasting for the last 13 weeks of the 1945-46 season. ABC offered Crosby 30000 per week to produce a recorded show every Wednesday that would be sponsored by Philco. He would get an additional 40000 from 400 independent stations for the rights to broadcast the 30-minute show, which was sent to them every Monday on three 16-inch, 40-centimeter lacquer discs that played 10 minutes per side at 33 and one-third RPM. Crosby wanted to change to recorded production for several reasons. The legend that has been most often told is that it would give him more time for golf. He did record his first Philco Radio Time program in August 1947 so he could enter the Jasper National Park Invitational Golf Tournament in September when the radio season was to start. But golf was not the most important reason. He wanted better quality recording, the ability to eliminate mistakes, and the need to perform a second live show for the West Coast and to control the timing of his performances. It's a good thing we record. We are able to pre-record ours. We make so many mistakes. Because Bing Crosby Enterprises produced the show, he could purchase the best audio equipment and arrange the microphones his way. Microphone placement had been debated in studios since the beginning of the electrical era. He would no longer have to wear the toupee <laughs> that CBS and NBC required for his live audience shows. I'm glad I don't have to wear one. He preferred a hat. He could also record short promotions for his latest investment, the world's first frozen orange juice sold under the brand name Minute Maid. This investment allowed him to make more money by finding a loophole where the IRS couldn't tax him at a 77% rate. Wow, what a story on that. Uh, I guess I'd also have to add, it's a good thing that we're not on, uh, on video, or maybe it would be better if I did wear a toupee. <laughs> uh, as Crosby wrote in his autobiography, by using tape, I could do a 35 or 40 minute show then edit it down to 26 or 27 minutes that the program ran. In that way, 
we could take out jokes, gags, or situations that didn't play well and finish with only the prime meat of the show, the solid stuff that played big. We could also take out the songs that didn't sound good. It gave us a chance to first try a recording of the songs in the afternoon without an audience, and then another one in front of studio audiences. We dubbed the one that came off best into the final transcription. It gave us a chance to ad-lib as much as we wanted, knowing that excess ad-libbing could be sliced from the final product. If I made a mistake in singing a song or in the script, I could have some fun with it, then retain any of the fun that sounded amusing. Crosby invested 50000 U.S. dollars in Ampex with the intent to produce more recording machines. Crosby recalled one time Bob Burns, the hillbilly comic, was on the show, and he threw in a few of his folksy farm stories, which, of course, were not in Bill Morrow's script. Today they wouldn't seem very off-color, but things were different on radio then. They got enormous laughs, which just went on and on. We couldn't use the jokes, but Bill asked us to save the laugh lines. A couple of weeks later, he had a show that wasn't very funny, and he insisted that we put in the salvaged laughs. That was when the laugh track was born. Crosby started the tape recorder revolution in America. In his 1950 film, Mr. Music, he's seen singing into an Ampex tape recorder that reproduced his voice better than anything else. Crosby continued to finance the development of videotape. Bing Crosby Enterprises gave the world's first demonstration of videotape recording in Los Angeles on November 11, 1951. A Crosby-led group purchased station KCOP-TV in Los Angeles in 1954. NAFI Corporation and Crosby purchased television station KPTV in Portland, Oregon for $4 million on September 1, 1955. In the early 1950s, Crosby helped establish the CBS network affiliate in his hometown of Spokane, Washington. He partnered with Ed Craney, who owned the CBS radio affiliate, KXLY-AM, and built a television studio and built a television studio west of Crosby's alma mater, Gonzaga University. Crosby was a fan of thoroughbred horse racing and bought his first racehorse in 1935. In 1937, he became a founding partner of the Del Mar Thoroughbred Club and a member of its board of directors. Operating from the Del Mar Racetrack at Del Mar, California, the group included millionaire businessman Charles S. Howard, who owned a successful racing stable that included Seabiscuit. Crosby and Lindsay Howard formed Bingland Stable to race and breed thoroughbred horses at a ranch in Moore Park in Ventura County, California. The Bing Crosby Breeders' Cup Handicap at Del Mar Racetrack is named in his honor. Crosby had an interest in sports. In the 1930s, his friend and former college classmate, Gonzaga head coach Mike Pekorovich appointed Crosby as an assistant football coach. From 1946 until his death, he owned a 25% share of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Although he was passionate about the team, he was too nervous to watch the deciding Game 7 of the 1960 World Series. Choosing to go to Paris with Catherine 
and listen to its radio broadcast. The game was one of the most famous in baseball history, capped off by Bill Mazeroski's walk-off home run. Crosby was also an avid golfer, and in 1978, he and Bob Hope were voted the Bob Jones Award, the highest honor given by the United States Golf Association in recognition of distinguished sportsmanship. He is a member of the World Golf Hall of Fame. In 1937, Crosby hosted the first Crosby Clambake, as it was popularly known, at Rancho Santa Fe Golf Club in Rancho Santa Fe, California, the event's location prior to World War II. Sam Sneed won the first tournament in which the first place check was for $500. Boy, they come a long way since then. After the war, the event resumed play in 1947 on golf courses in Pebble Beach, where it has been played ever since. Now the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am, it has been a leading event in the world of professional golf. Crosby was a keen fisherman, especially in his younger days, but it was a pastime that he enjoyed throughout his life. In the summer of 1966, he spent a week as the guest of Lord Ingramont, staying in Cockermouth and fishing on the River Derwent. His trip was filmed for the American Sportsman on ABC. Although all did not go well at first, as the salmon were not running, he did make up for it at the end of the week by catching a number of sea trout. Well, that sounds like kind of a fishy story to me. Oh, wait. That's one of those ad-libs that we're supposed to take out, isn't it? Good thing we're recording. Uh, uh, yeah, but we're having fun, Dave. Well, Crosby was married twice. His first wife was actress and nightclub singer Dixie Lee, to whom he was married from 1930 until her death from ovarian cancer in 1952. They had four sons, Gary, twins Dennis and Philip, and Lindsay. The smash-up, The Story of a Woman, 1947, is based on Lee's life. After his wife died, Crosby had relationships with model Pat Sheehan, who married his son Dennis in 1958, and actresses Ingar Stevens and Grace Kelly, before marrying Catherine Grant. They had three children, Harry Lillis III, who played Bill on Friday the 13th, Mary, best known for portraying Kristen Shepard on TV's Dallas, and Nathaniel, the 1981 U.S. amateur champion in golf. Crosby reportedly had an alcohol problem in his youth and may have been dismissed from Paul Whiteman's orchestra because of it, but he later got a handle on his drinking. After Crosby's death, his eldest son Gary wrote a highly critical memoir, Going My Own Way, depicting his father as cruel, cold, remote, and physically and psychologically abusive. Crosby's younger son, Philip, vociferously disputed his brother Carrie's claims about their father. Around the time Gary made his claims, Philip stated to the press that Gary is a whining, bitching crybaby, walking around with a two-before on his shoulder and just daring people to nudge it off. Nevertheless, Philip did not deny that Crosby believed in corporal punishment. In an interview with People, Philip stated that we never got an extra whack or a cuff we didn't deserve. During an interview in 1999 by Globe, Philip stated, 
My dad was not the monster my lying brother said he was. He was strict, but my father never beat us black and blue, and my brother Gary was a vicious, no-good liar for saying so. I have nothing but fond memories of Dad, going to studios with him, family vacations at our cabin in Idaho, boating and fishing with him. To my dying day, my dad was my hero. I loved him very much. He loved all of us, too, including Gary. He was a great father. Crosby's will established a blind trust in which none of the sons received inheritance until they reached the age of 65. Lindsay Crosby died in 1989 at age 51, and Dennis Crosby died in 1991 at age 56, both by suicide from self-inflicted gunshot wounds. Gary Crosby died of lung cancer in 1995 at age 62, and Philip Crosby died of a heart attack in 2004 at age 69. So only one of the children was able to to get the trust, I guess. Yep. So uh, I guess that's a motivation to live a little longer. <laughs> Widow Catherine Crosby dabbled in local theater productions intermittently and appeared in television tributes to her late husband. Following his recovery from a life-threatening fungal infection of his right lung in January 1974, Crosby emerged from semi-retirement to start a new spate of albums and concerts. In March 1977, after videotaping a concert at the Ambassador Auditorium in Pasadena for CBS to commemorate his 50th anniversary in show business, and with Bob Hope looking on, Crosby fell off the stage into an orchestra pit, rupturing a disc in his back, requiring a month in the hospital. His first performance after the accident was his last American concert, on August 16, 1977. When the electric power failed during his performance, he continued singing without amplification. In September, Crosby, his family, and singer Rosemary Clooney began a concert tour of Britain that included two weeks at the London Palladium. While in the United Kingdom, Crosby recorded his final album, Seasons, and his final TV Christmas special with guest David Bowie on September 11th, which aired a little over a month after Crosby's death. On October 13, 1977, Crosby flew alone to Spain to play golf and hunt partridge. I wonder if they had a pear tree. <laughs> on October 14th, at the La Moralia golf course near Madrid, Crosby played 18 holes of golf. His partner was World Cup champion Manuel Pinero. Their opponents were, were club president Cesar de Zulueta and Valentin Barrios. According to Barrios, Crosby was in good spirits throughout the day and was photographed several times during the round. At the ninth hole, construction workers building a house nearby recognized him, and when asked for a song, Crosby sang Strangers in the Night. Crosby, who had a 13 handicap, lost to his partner by one stroke. As Crosby and his party headed back to the clubhouse, Crosby said, That was a great game of golf, fellas. At about 6.30 p.m., Crosby collapsed about 20 yards from the clubhouse entrance and died instantly from a massive heart attack. At the clubhouse and later in the ambulance, house physician Dr. Lesica 
tried to revive him, but was unsuccessful. At Reina Victoria Hospital, he was administered the last rites of the Catholic Church and was pronounced dead. On October 18th, following a private funeral mass at St. Paul's Catholic Church in Westwood, Crosby was buried at Holy Cross Cemetery in Culver City, California. His tombstone incorrectly identified his year of birth as 1904 instead of 1903. A plaque was placed at the golf course in his memory. What an incredible career, an incredible singer, actor, family man, philanthropist, investor, and many all-around successful events. He left quite a legacy. He's a member of the National Association of Broadcasters Hall of Fame in the radio division. In his autobiography, Don't Shoot, It's Only Me, 1990, Bob Hope wrote, Dear old Bing, as we called him the economy-sized Sinatra, and what a voice. How I miss that voice. I can't even turn on the radio around Christmas time without crying anymore. That's quite a tribute from Bob Hope. Calypso musician Roaring Lion wrote a tribute song in 1939 titled Bing Crosby, in which he wrote, Bing has a way of singing with his very heart and soul, which captivates the world. Bing Crosby Stadium in Front Royal, Virginia, was named after Crosby in honor of his fundraising and cash contributions for its construction from 1948 to 1950. In 2006, the former Metropolitan Theater of Performing Arts in Spokane, Washington, was renamed the Bing Crosby Theater. Again, a great, great uh, singer and a great opportunity for us to be able to share this time with you in going down memory lane from singers of the golden days of radio. Thanks for being with us today. We hope you're having as much enjoyment as we are, reliving some of the unforgettable memories of the golden days of radio. To learn more about the career of today's artists and listen to several of their greatest hits, we invite you to go to our website, www.goldengems.net. May we also encourage you to tell your friends about the show. We'd love to have them join us in these little trips down memory lane. And as always, we invite your feedback or comments on goldengemsradio at gmail.com. So until next episode, this is Dave and Bill heading back into the archives to dust off some more unforgettable memories to share with you on Golden Gems. <laughs>